Okay, welcome back to Plato's Cave, uh, the first episode recorded in Houston, Texas. And joining me today is Manuel Vargas. Uh, Manuel is a professor of philosophy at the University of California, San Diego, and his research focuses on the overlap of moral, psychological, and legal issues concerning human agency and freedom. He also writes about contemporary Latinx philosophy and the history of Mexican philosophy. So Manuel, thank you very much for uh, joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's uh, it's always great to be on a podcast that focuses on the history of philosophy in Mexico. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not this podcast. Um... Oh, uh, sorry. <laughs> um, no, but it, it is great to be here. I'm really looking forward to our, to our conversation, and and I'm excited to be your inaugural Texas guest. Yes, um, we don't have the we don't have the right hats on for this episode. We need we need different headgear for this. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No. So so actually, yeah, I. Latinx and Mexican philosophy is honestly something that I'll be the first to admit I know quite literally nothing about. I don't know if there'll be an opportunity to take any classes about that um, at Houston, but if so, I'll, I'll definitely have you back on for a, for another episode. <laughs> um, but no, so we're talking about uh, a fairly different uh, topic today, your view on free will and moral responsibility, or at least um, one of your views on that uh, set of topics, revisionism, uh, which I'll admit, I'll butter you up at the beginning of the episode. I, when I started reading about the view, I was disposed to be um, not a hater, but but definitely skeptical of the view. And you very much uh, turned me towards towards at least a. I would say I'm I'm revisionist adjacent at this point. Um, so congratulations on that victory. Well, welcome to the dark side. I mean, the, the, the dark side of the force has, has a distinctive power set. And so I you know, encourage everyone to try it out. Yeah. So um, if you would, just for people who may not be familiar at all with the view, um, I mean, generally, like, you know, this podcast talks a lot about um, free will and moral responsibility. But what specifically is revisionism when it comes to those topics? Yeah. So uh, I think oftentimes the best way to think about what revisionism about free will and moral responsibility is like um, starts by thinking about things that are completely disconnected. So forget everything you know for a moment about free will. Let's say just pretend the topic doesn't even exist. One of the things I think that uh, that is is just familiar from the the long arc of the history of science and the long arc of the history of of, of human cultures and, and human forms of, of self-organization is that we change our mind about things over time. So uh, take the kind of uh, the view that, that people had at one point in time about uh, water, for example, being one of the four basic indivisible substances of the, of the universe. And over time, we eventually came to have the chemical theory of water, and then this changed our understanding about what water is, or similar kinds of things with the miasma and germ theories of, of disease. But this isn't just about scientific phenomena. It's about like everyday real world phenomena. So, uh, so criminal law and the common law tradition, for example, didn't care about intentions uh, up until about the 12th century. And so in, in the 12th century, there was this innovation in legal practice where the thought is, well, whether or not somebody's guilty or not, uh, maybe we shouldn't think about this in a strict liability way. Maybe we should be trying to discern and track what people's intentions are. And so this was a kind of transformation in the understanding about what the basis was of, of legal guilt. And so I think this sort of phenomenon happens all over the place where we, we come to change our minds about what the nature of something is. Um, most recently, maybe in the United States, the kind of really salient version of this is, is marriage. I think, you know, you, 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 the, the poll data seems to suggest that 30 years ago, 
uh, a lot of people took it as almost a conceptual truth, or maybe in fact, a literal conceptual truth that marriage had to be between a man and a woman. And, uh, and I think it's, it's, you know, there remains disagreement about this today, but there's widespread acceptance of the idea that, that, uh, that, that in fact, uh, not only is uh, the possibility of gay marriage uh, possible, but same-sex marriage, in fact, is actual um, and, and legally recognized now. And so that, that sort of phenomenon is, is a, a, the general kind of phenomenon uh, that I think of as, as revisionism about some or another phenomenon. And I think that's the right thing we should think about the nature of free will and moral responsibility. That is, I think we can identify ways that we thought about these things that have a that are embedded in a long and complicated cultural history, but that uh, but that some combination of scientific and philosophical reflection has given us reason to change our minds about uh, about important aspects of that. And then the result is that that I think a good or satisfying philosophical theory is going to have the result that it will conflict with aspects of everyday common sense, at least up until the point at which we fully take it on board or have internalized it. And maybe in some sense, it, it persists indefinitely. And I think there can be cases of that too, where it turns out there there's phenomena, you know, think about light being both a particle and a wave. It's really hard for the layperson to wrap their head around how that could possibly be true. <laughs> but I think, you know, that, that it may, so maybe free will ends up being something like that, where the right theoretical account is always going to be a, a sort of un, uh, uncomfortable when considered from the standpoint of, everyday understandings of it. But I, but I think that's the, the general shape of the class of view that I've been trying to articulate and get people to A, see the possibility of that we could go in for a theory of free will that will be at odds with or conflicting with aspects of common sense, but that B might have something appealing to be said for it, where it's not just a mere conceptual possibility that we could have a theory like that, but that there are good reasons to think we should actually adopt and hold that kind of theory. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. I also, I don't think I mentioned this at the top, um, but just for people, I know I mentioned it to you, but so I'm, I'm kind of reading you as you appear in the um, four views on free will book from 2007, which is a fantastic book. Um, but there are from... three great chapters and one <laughs> ugly one in there. Um, <laughs> so that that last chapter, the, uh, the fourth chapter, I think is, is, a, is a weak one, but the first three are tremendous. <laughs> And the response yeah. chapters are interesting too, but but really the first three chapters are terrific. Yes. That yeah, it's uh, the fourth is a bit of hogwash, you know. The the, the first yeah. three are are the baby in the bathwater. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I I also um I know we talked about this over email, but also so like when if you differ from what you said in the two thousand seven book, I'd actually be really curious to hear about that too. So don't feel like you have to um kind of you know conform to like the two thousand seven version of you. Um, so, okay. So if I'm uh, reading and hearing you correctly, there's sort of, there's two aspects to revisionism, generally speaking. There's the descriptive part, which is that, you know, our current theory is saying X. And then there's the prescriptive part, which is saying that, well, actually we need to revise our theory of whatever it is to be something different than X. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So, so think of the, the, I think a lot of theorizing, runs together these two different components, what I uh, sometimes mm. call descriptive or diagnostic theorizing and prescriptive theorizing. And uh, and part of uh, seeing the possibility of revisionism requires disentangling these things. Mm. So it's the, the idea that we can get an account of how it is that we tend to think about something, that's the descriptive diagnostic uh, portion. And then there's the, the question about what all things considered ought we to believe going forward. And, and the revisionist says the prescriptive theory is going to be in conflict with the, the diagnostic or descriptive theory. 
Mm -hmm. That's right. And I also, I was wondering if like, um, there seems to be implicit sort of a third premise there. And I was wondering if you would agree with it explicitly. So there, there are those two premises too, but then there also has to be this additional sort of desire to retain a certain, you know, label for a, um, you know, a belief or an idea or a proposition too, right? Because if you, you could imagine, um, just those first two premises could could entail an abandonment of the first term, um, but you actually also have to want to like retain that that verb or or phrase or noun or whatever it is in gen in specific, right? So I guess I, I I've been inclined to think that the prescription is uh is is in some sense baking in that idea. Okay. So okay. the idea is the prescription is how ought we to think about the and then X whatever the X is whether it's a concept or a referent or a meaning hmm. uh, a uh, a property and so uh, depending on what we're talking about we're, we might want to regiment the language in different ways here but I think the so I was thinking of this as built into the prescriptive element. And okay. then there's a further question. And this is something that I think this is maybe one thing that the difference between the 2007 version that is in the four views on free will book, and then sort of post 2013 versions of, of, of the, the, the view that I that I prefer, um, that I think uh, there's been, uh, I think we've got a, those of us who are sort of inclined to revisionist theorizing are a little clearer about about something very closely related to this issue you're you're asking about, which is that you might then think that there's a there's a further question to be asked once you've done the revisionist theorizing, and that's about whether or not we should retain the notion that once we have what we take to be our best all things considered version of that kind of thing it might turn out that you know the, the very best theory of phlogiston ends up still being a theory that we should reject um and so i think that you're you're rightly picking up on there's a there's a further question here we could ask mm. and, and i mean i think it, you know one of the things that's emerged in the um in the conceptual engineering literature which I think is is talking about many of the same kinds of things that were animating the the revisionist project, and I think it's just one of these funny artifacts of the way in which philosophy un unfolds that you have parallel discussions happening in different literatures where people aren't picking up on uh, or interacting with the discussions that are happening in, in in other domains. But I think one of the things that the folks who've been thinking about conceptual engineering, qua conceptual engineering, have rightly pointed our attention to, is that. Uh, that you could think that there are a bunch of different constraints that are potentially available for um, guiding whether or not we we retain the concept or the term uh, across, as it were, theoretical transitions. And so one thing that might, you know, one way to put it is think of it in terms of the question of topic continuity. When is it that we're still talking about the same topic? And it might be that for different kinds of terms, there are different constraints on what constitutes topic continuity. So are we talking about retaining the practices? Are we talking about retaining a, a normative justification? Are we talking about retaining conceptual content? Um, all of these things might provide different sorts of constraints on how it is we think about the answer, those answers to the question about what's the relationship between the diagnostic and the prescriptive and then the retention questions. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, one of my, like, kind of first critical questions about the view is that so like in the book, you have the three um, analogies that you draw. So there's, you know, water, marriage, and magicians. And I thought it was interesting, because all three of those kind of have, um, like a different degree of social constructionism, right? So if you look at water, for instance, um, like, 
I'm wondering if there's a way in which that analogy is a little bit actually disanalogous to something like free will, um, because with water, for instance, everyone agreed on what we were trying to describe. It's not as though people were pointing at, you know, dirt and saying like that, that's water. No, it, we were pointing at the same thing. And yet it was just these kind of like theories, I guess you could say about water that were that were different. And, and we revised to what we think is the correct one. Right. But I'm wondering. um, like if that necessarily holds for something like free will, um, where it seems like, you know, so I guess my question to you is like, um, how how much of this hinges on, it seems like there's a real disagreement about the phenomenon that we're describing, not just what we call it. Um, so for instance, you know, libertarians are, are of a certain strain are positing some like contra causal ability that we have, whereas compatibilists and hard determinists both roughly speaking agree on on what sorts of abilities we might have. And then it comes down to how we want to think about them or how we want to talk about them. So, uh, okay, so um, a, a couple of thoughts. Uh, so one is, uh, uh, I mean, I, I, I think you're right to, to raise the question about disanalogies between the water case and, and the free will case. And I do think that there are interesting and relevant disanalogies in, in, in that particular case. Though I guess I was thinking of the, the water and the magician case uh, and the marriage cases at the outset of the, the, uh, that chapter in the Four Views on Free Will book as... Uh, intended to motivate a certain kind of possibility. That is that we could, mm -hmm. that there's grounds to think that we could go in for revisionist theorizing and that it's not just uh, a, a sort of ad hoc motivation in the context of okay. free will, but rather it's a kind of thing that we do in lots of different domains. So it's not a weird project to, to, to take up this project okay. in, in the case of free will. So that's that was the kind of the, the primary work I was thinking it was doing. Uh, but even so, you might still think, well, okay, so, but that's just a grant that it's a possibility. We still might have reasonable questions about, um, about whether or not, uh, say, the, the revisionism about free will looks more like a water case where maybe there's a natural kind that we agree about, uh, about what counts as in the extension mm -hmm. uh, versus cases where maybe we disagree about what counts in the extension as in like marriage cases. So, uh, you know, think about the massive amounts of disagreement about what constitutes marriage. So you go in and you do ethnographic work and you see cross-culturally hanging out with anthropologists and there can be mating practices, but do all mating practices count as marriage practices? Well, if you're hanging out with a group of Catholic priests, they're going to say, no, not all marriage practices, you know, not, not all mating practices count as marriage practices. There's the sacramental relation that obtains under certain kinds of conditions. And if it doesn't obtain, then it's not really in the true and deep sense marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so you can have th those kinds of disagreements about what falls into the extension of relatively familiar words around us that I think are going to be a little closer to the uh, to the, uh, the the free will and responsibility cases. Even though, note, uh, you know, as we noted at the, here at the outset of the, the, of the discussion, uh, that that even though we've had robust disagreements about uh, what falls into the extension of marriage, it's also true that we've changed our mind and relatively clearly changed our mind repeatedly over the history of the the deployment of that concept. Now, one thing you could think is, well, but part of the worry is that 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 some people think about free will as a um, practice independent, metaphysically antecedent phenomena in the universe that's going to be closer to a natural kind mm -hmm. rather than a social kind. And so the kinds of flexibility I'm talking about are flexibility uh, ground uh, bound up in in the kind of dynamics of social practices. 
Um, so, so if you had that thought, you might worry about the marriage analogy not being particularly compelling. Mm. But then I think, you know, it doesn't take a lot of uh, of trundling around in the history of science to find examples in the even in, in kind of broadly natural kind literatures where people are arguing about whether or not something was. Uh, you know, uh, uh, whether or not something was caloric or not. And, and so there's just kind of disagreement about what was following it, following in the extension. So I think we, we get those same kinds of disagreements, but we just have to be careful about wh what examples we're selecting and which properties we think are the ones that are distinctive of the kind of problems that we're looking at. So that's not a full answer, but I think it's a partial answer to the kind of the, the, the worry you're raising. Mm -hmm. No, no, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think the way I'm, I'm kind of viewing it is, um, it might be the case that compatibilists and hard determinists kind of team up a little bit in the sense of, of going after libertarians as saying, you know, this, this natural kind of phenomenon, it, they're, they're going to unite in saying that doesn't exist. And then I think the more um, label oriented or term or language oriented disagreement then maybe reemerges between the the sort of Dirk Parabooms and yourself, for instance. Um, yeah, good. So, uh, um, I mean, so I think here I want to be cautious um, yeah. because I, I, in some moods anyway, I'm inclined to think that we've had a bit of mystification by labels in the in the free will and responsibility literature. So, uh, so one of the things I guess I'd want to say about um, about libertarians is that uh, is that it might be true that there are disagreements among some parties about whether or not the forms of agency that libertarians think are necessary for free will and moral responsibility. There, there are going to be some people who disagree about whether or not we have those things, um, and I think that, that there are real and substantive disagreements there. That seems to me a different disagreement than the question about whether or not those forms of agency are required um, to justify uh, our practices of, for example, holding one another to account. Mm. And and you could think something like, well, uh, you know, it's it's not that I think that libertarianism is impossible or even that it's necessarily implausible. I might just be agnostic about whether or not um, we have agency like that and think like it could just this is going to be a. A question for future science. Uh, if it turns out our best models about how the human mind operate turn out to be uh, stochastic or indeterministic models and no amount of sciencing it up ever gives us anything like a uh, a, a deterministic account of how the how the mind and human decision making works in kind of morally salient decisions. Uh, you know that, that maybe future science just never gives us that, and we get to the end of time and maximal science has has been done, and it just turns out like well shit the libertarians were right all along yeah. um, about what the metaphysics of agency was like. That that's certainly possible, but I, I think in some sense that's going to be unresponsive to at least one wing of concern in this literature, which is about not the question about like. Um, is it plausible the universe is built in one way rather than another? It's the question about what what's the minimal or the thinnest or the the barest requirement mm -hmm. on us holding one another to account or uh, or uh, or being able to rightly use the term free. So it could turn out that that we do have libertarian agency. It just turns out the libertarian agency isn't what's required in order to be free and responsible. Mm, okay. No, that I I buy that. Yeah, that's why. Um... I guess uh, this is uh, it's related, but a little bit tangential. Y you, um, from what I seem to understand, you um, and many people do this. And I guess I've always been a little bit confused as to why the literature looks this way. Um, a, a lot of people sort of 
in the responsibility debate, define free will as the condition required for moral responsibility. And I guess I I naturally kind of tend to think about it a little bit differently in the sense that um, like it, it just seems like when we do that, we are almost deflating free will a little bit in the sense that it, it just sort of comes along with with responsibility. But I've, I always thought about free will as like the question of um, what abilities or types of freedom or types of agency do we have, irrespective of whether responsibility follows from that. Um, I don't know if, if you have. What do you mean by freedom? What do I mean by freedom? Like what? <laughs> Good question. By freedom, I mean sort of like what sense of unconstrained action can I take? So like, do I have access to the forking paths, for instance? Like, do alternate possibilities really metaphysically exist in some way? Um, like, could things have gone differently had the clock been rewound or whatever? Um, and I, I guess... I've always thought about free will as a concept a little bit differently than than just being the precondition to moral responsibility. Um, I don't know. Like, do you think that that's um, like? A, 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 do you agree with that or, at all, or or no? Yeah. So, uh, um, so I think that one of the 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 chronic um, uh, the 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 chronic points of uh, submerged disagreement in the literature has to do with the the the, the framing of these questions. Um, so this is a kind of methodological point or a, a metaphilosophical point about the about the subfield. And I think um, you know uh, the, the, this this is a, a claim I'm going to be completely unable to substantiate, but I'm just going to just assert it with confidence that uh, <laughs> that when it feels like a lot of the basic views and foundational views in a literature are talking past each other. That's oftentimes a symptom that uh, that the debate is elsewhere and that there are just foundational metaphilosophical disagreements that are shaping how the debate's going that people aren't focusing on or talking mm -hmm. about, which is why it can make sense of the, or this. it's why it can sometimes feel as though you've got ships passing in the night. So I think one of the areas in which ships have been sometimes passing in the night in this literature, and I don't think it's universal. It's not that nobody's ever talked about these things at all, but I think it's uh, in the ways in which we think and talk about these things in an intro free will class, for example. Oftentimes we don't directly talk about this set of issues. So, so here's uh, so here's a set of reactions to the the general thought that you had. And so it's, sometimes I paint this as a kind of disagreement between those who are metaphysics first and those who are normative theory first. Um, and I, but I do think there, there's a there. Uh, this is a useful heuristic for keeping track of what I think is at the end of the day, even a more complicated debate than that. But but at at the level of the, this heuristic, it goes something like this: um, You've got to decide what your priors are for your theorizing. Like, what are the things that you're taking as foundational? And there are a group of folks who think something like, "Look, we have a relatively good grip on a prior and antecedent notion of freedom that plays no functional role elsewhere, but that we can just." as it were, from the armchair, provide a characterization of what it is. And then we can go out and, and ask questions about whether or not realizations of that broad concept um, are more and less plausible and we can have a fight about it. But, but we can start from a kind of metaphysics first phenomena and then go in and fill in the details. Mm -hmm. And then there, there are folks who are inclined to think, well, um, uh, you know, we can generate all kinds of metaphysical exotica and abstract it from the armchair. Um, and there's the, but the, the question is, why should any of those abstracta have any 
demand on our thinking or grip on our philosophical theorizing or count as at all related to everyday discourse. Because no, you and I can invent all sorts of metaphysical possibilities in this conversation mm -hmm. that have no connection to everyday conversation. I mean, this is the the, the Dan Dennett point about the truce of Schmesh, is <laughs> that we could have elaborate theories about how to go about um, you know, doing strategy in a game that is just like chess, except the horse has a slightly different move uh, than in, in, in the actual world's version of chess. And so there would be a lot of truths we could articulate there. But, but I think the normatively minded folks have tended to think, we've got to anchor our metaphysics in something else. It's a metaphysics tied to something else that drives it. And then a lot of those folks have thought, well, you know, look at the tradition, look at where people are talking about free will and moral responsibility. And, and very, very often um, those things are linked, right? It turns out in Kant that free will is significant in large part because of its connection to responsibility and culpability in the, uh, in the religious tradition about the, that's tied into the problem of evil and as a kind of resolution to the problem of evil. Uh, you know, look at, at Nietzsche and his characterizations about free will and why he thinks you know, he's a kind of eliminativist about free will. Why does he think it was ever invented? It's an mm -hmm. answer. It's, it's uh, tied into social practices of credit and debt. And so, so, I mean, there's a long philosophical tradition that, that goes the kind of what I'm characterizing here is the broadly normative way that the metaphysics has to be hooked into a, a set of practices. But there's also a, a real tradition of people thinking, no, maybe there's a kind of independent metaphysical specification we can give. Okay, so that's that's a first pass. The the, the a, a slightly complexifying version of this story says, well, maybe that's a little too quick on the characterization of the metaphysicians. So here's a, a set of things that the metaphysicians could think um, are tied into real and relatively concrete things. It's just not social practices of culpability. So here here are among the things. So when we first person deliberate, it looks like we have open possibilities in front of us. Do we have true beliefs about ourselves when we're deliberating about what we can do? So there's a kind of, there's a notion. Here's another notion um, that looks like it, it might come apart from the deliberation notion. Uh, sometimes we're interested in the question about whether or not I was ultimately the source of an action in the causal order, some unique causal origin point that is uh, that is discrete, not merely a product of the, of what happened previously. Now, notice that is not about first-person phenomenology. It's not about questions about whether or not the beliefs I had about myself when I was deliberating were true. And it doesn't look like it's necessarily got to be tied into practices of culpability and, and blame. Um, and I think, you know, we can, we can go and, and sp spell out more and more of these different kinds of notions. There might be explanatory notions. So like uh, Gunnar Bjornsson and, and, uh, in work with some of his collaborators has argued that we have an interest in, in explaining action and action explanations will sometimes uh, generate pressures to identify some things as, as central to the explanation and not. And it's our demands and interest in, in, in kind of trying to identify what what explains why certain kinds of events happen. So there's a kind of explanatory framework thing that looks like it's different than the question about, as it were, genuine causal origin and maybe different than the question about first person deliberative standpoints. So I think notice by the time we get done doing all of this and we start to spell out all of these different kinds of framework things, then what counts as a good theory and a theory responsive to the data starts to look really different. Yeah. Now that's a, that's a long setup to the punchline, which is, uh, um, I do think that there are diverse versions of the free will problem running around out there. I don't think we have, I don't think, I think it's a mistake to think there's a single free will problem as, as some folks have liked to, to say. And I think that, um, you know, a uh, hint that there's a bit of philosophical imperialism going on is when somebody says, 
um, things like uh, we were clear about what the free will problem was, and then other people came and screwed it all up. And it's like, well, no, um, you know, look, you know, look at the thousands of years of people talking about versions of this problem, and they're interestingly distinct versions of these things. And it's not clear that, so that's the sense in which I, I'm, a, I'm skeptical. There's a single problem here. I think there, there are multiple problems. And the best we can do is to be clear about what the, pro, what the specific problem is that we're interested in. Mm -hmm. And then it might turn out some of the resources that we're using over here turn out to be useful over here. But I think a, a, yeah, maybe I think it's fair to say a plurality of the, the literature, both contemporary and historical has thought that um, that the version they were concerned to give a response to was one tied into culpability practices. But I think it's important to think, um, or it's important to recognize that, that that is not the only set of problems lurking here. And you could think we have a good answer to that without thinking we have a good answer to the problem of evil or having a good answer to the, the question about causal origin or about first person deliberation or dot, 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 dot. Mm, okay. Uh, that, that explanation alone was worth the price of admission for me. I, <laughs> I, I had always like, there was that, the way you phrased it there was extremely illuminating to me. Um, so thank you for that. I realized I took us down a little bit of a rabbit hole though. So return, returning to. Revision. Well, we are talking about the free will problem. There, <laughs> it's it's all rabbit holes. <laughs> that is true. Um, and it's a lot of talking past rabbit holes as you, as you pointed out. Um, so, so, um, that, okay, that actually, yeah, I'm I'm gonna think about that explanation a lot with respect to to um, maybe like semi compatibilism in particular as well because that's that's a view I was very drawn to. Um, so going back to um, your your kind of proposals put forth in the book, so you and I, from what I understand, this is something you've also slightly changed your mind on a little bit. Um, when when we're going back to that discussion of of what we currently believe um, juxtaposed to what we should believe, the of the view you put forth in the book is that our current notions of of free will are incompatibilist and then um within that libertarian um and is that something that you have slightly changed your mind on yeah so i i think these days i'm inclined to to, to be a little more cautious uh, about these things so i think one of the things that we uh, we learned or ought to have learned from the, the past 20 years of people doing broadly experimental philosophy mm. um, or, uh, or psychology that is responsive to the interests of philosophers. Um, so the, the, those two enterprises, I think, have made it clear that it's, it's very difficult to make good on sweeping generalizations about what, what and how people think. Um, and, and especially about, about sort of theoretical constructs, because of course, given that the theoretical constructs are themselves contested, it's not clear how we can reliably uh, suss out what ordinary commitments are on these theoretical constructs. And, and so that, you know, there's, there's challenges and everything, it, it, it challenges and everything and challenges to the literature from which I'm going to draw from here. But, but I've become persuaded that the right way to think about it is that there is a significant chunk of, um, of the of of some lo relatively local us, where the relatively local us includes, as I think I put it in some some place, uh, NATO countries and their allies, um, <laughs> that uh, that tends to hold that uh, that the nature of of free agency of a sort that might matter for things like culpability um, will uh, will oftentimes, but not universally. Uh, have something like broadly libertarian commitments. 
Hmm. And uh, and crucially, I think it's uh, it, it can be variegated and context sensitive. So that is, it might well be that we just have a mix of commitments that that is under some conditions we're prone to thinking more like libertarians and in other conditions we're more prone to thinking like compatibilists and in maybe some conditions we're prone to thinking like eliminativists and different kinds of conditions can, can plump our intuitions in those ways. And so that's the sense in which I think here I'm uncomfortable these days asserting that everybody or that the vast majority are are thoroughgoing incompatibilists and thoroughgoing libertarians in particular. Mm. I think it's more like many of us, some of the time, are libertarians. And, and that's all it takes to, to have the free will problem be a longstanding, gripping problem. And I think it's it's also part of what's explanatory in why there's been such protracted and sustained philosophical dispute about this. I think it goes something like, uh, you know, folks get, they, folks get, a, uh, you know, get exposed to this at some point in college. They you know, go off to graduate school. They have uh, a really charismatic or really not charismatic presentation of one or another view. And, you know, during the whole process, they might have some wayward intuitions over here, wayward intuitions over here, but then they get trained up to know how to respond to those ones <laughs> and to suppress these ones here. And, and the charms of, of regimenting these intuitions rather than those intuitions begins to do its work. And then, you know, a few years in, you have dogmatically committed folks for whom they will defend the party line at all costs against the heathens and apostates of the other view. And I, I think, but I think th like that, the reason why that happens is precisely because we do have mm. divergent or mixed intuitions from the get-go that, that, that ordinary common sense isn't so completely overwhelmingly decisive in one direction or another. It has to be that it's, it, it's rich enough in its ability to support distinct kinds of theorizing that that's where I think we end up with this kind of situation. Yeah. Yeah. No, it would be frankly amazing if folk intuitions perfectly aligned with one notion or theory or another, given that, you know, like these theories have been refined and cultivated by many people over many, many years. So like it would be it would be statistically improbable for that to be true. Um, but no, I do. Yeah, I, I definitely not having like run any X5 studies myself, but just like, you know, from the armchair or out in the world, I do agree that most people I would say most of the time tend to be libertarian leaning. Um, and so in that sense, um, I guess I was sort of, you know, I told you like I was agreed with you more than I thought I would. And I think I've always sort of been like I was revisionist without knowing it in a sense that, you know, if you simply, you know, do disagree with what the current theory holds and you think that we should retain the term in some way, shape or form, then you do kind of find yourself in the re revisionist crowd. Um, That's so right. Yeah. And I mean, for what it's worth, I'm inclined to think that um, that a lot of historical compatibilist theories are probably um, they were not crafted as intentionally revisionist theories. So I think lots of folks, you know, think about all the fights about the conditional analysis of can the, the shape of these arguments were arguments about like, no, 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 the ordinary meaning of can is and then insert the conditional analysis. And uh, and this is why it was. Uh, you know, viewed as a kill shot when these examples came out about uh, about the, the breakdown of uh, the breakdown of the conditional analysis of canon phobia cases. Why was it a kill shot? Well, it was a kill shot because it was supposed to be representing everyday ordinary notions. So I think there's a long strand of compatibilism that saddled itself with the constraint of trying to represent and understand or articulate uh, what it took to be the common sense view. But I also think there are other compatibles who were running around who, whether or not they had the, 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 the kind of ready vocabulary to talk about their theories in those ways, were either 
uh, you know, moving in the direction of or tacitly helping themselves to the possibility that, well, no, this is a kind of theoretical transformation of our understanding. It's a it's designed to replace the folk, everyday, crude, non-philosophical account that that's what the work of philosophy is to do is sometimes to overturn mm -hmm. everyday convictions. And of course, there's a long contested history here about like what the proper scope of philosophy is and whether or not revisionist projects are always dead in the water and uh, and and whether or not we should think of as philosophy as, as exclusively a defense of common sense or something else. So, I mean, long, big, and this is the sense in which I think large metaphilosophical disputes here are lurking on the underside of the free will problem and part of the explanation for its absolute refusal to die. Mm. <laughs> and yeah, this was so so that is touching on on something that I once again, you sort of illuminated this this point that I realized I had been thinking about, but not explicitly in these terms, when you differentiate between weak revisionism and moderate revisionism. Um, and so you say, you know, to see the difference between weak and moderate revisionism, reflect on the difference between, on the one hand, what the folk think, and on the other hand, what the folk think they think. And so that's where um, I, I guess a really big difference between you and a compatibilist like John Martin Fisher, for instance, would would um, kind of get teased out is Fisher seems to almost be thinking that, um, you know, what the people think they think is wrong. And we can just kind of scoot them a little bit towards what they really deeply think in some sense. And that happens to be the correct theory, you know, whether it's any type of compatibilism you like. But you're sort of biting the bullet in some sense and taking the slightly harder lined view and saying, no, what the people think is is just wrong. Like we just do need to, in a lot of ways, like reform people's beliefs about these things. Yeah, good. So I'm I, here. I want to be careful and I'll, I'll leave to John Fisher the defense of his own account <laughs> and how he, he thinks it is best understood. Uh, but I do think that that. Um, weekly revisionist accounts, the, the way I was employing the distinction there is exactly as you were characterizing it. And I think this is what a lot of a, a lot of compatibilists have taken themselves to be committed to. It, it is a kind of weak revision where the thought is something like what the revision is supposed to be is just we're, we're, we're helping the folks see what they were committed to all along. And it's not that the folk were mistaken, um, in, uh, except in their understanding of themselves. But but <laughs> once you understand what the actual core commitments are, it turns out they they really uh, you know th there was nothing problematic about the core commitments. The only thing that was problematic is their understanding of what those core commitments were. And I think that's the kind of classical compatibilism where the thought was something like, no, libertarians are introducing confusions that make people get confused about what it is that they all, all they ever really meant by. Um, by these terms. Uh, and so, so I do think, you know, so, so I do think that, that there have been a lot of compatibles who were thinking in that vein, for sure. Um, but I do, but, but now I guess, and so this is, you know, one of these ways in which it, I think it partly depends on how you think about, or, or what one's characterization of revisionism is. There are reasons to think that, um, that uh, you know the the weak versus moderate revisionism. It's not that it's not picking out something, but if you think of revisionism as the prescriptive is in conflict with aspects about common sense, uh, and that that's a, a relatively scalar notion, you could think something like, well, uh, you know that that the compatibilist accounts aren't really in conflict with common sense. What they're in conflict with is common sense is self construal. Mm. Um, and that's the sense in which it's a kind of a uh, relatively weak variety of, of revision and probably not worth the name. Yeah. 
that's it, the weird thing was i um now i don't know if this is just idiosyncratic or if i was skimming over paragraphs or something but i always read compatibilist accounts as being or at least like i interpreted them as the more moderate revision-esque where they were almost saying like we don't really care what the folk think you know we're trying to prime like you the philosophically sophisticated readers intuitions with like this variation of a frankfurt example or whatever you know um but well, I think sometimes that was going on. I mean, this is yeah. this is one of these things where I think so to to speak flatly, um, lack of clarity about what the 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 different and distinct options are and what burdens they carry mm -hmm. um, has meant that people were sometimes running together what turn out to be distinct projects. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that there are some compatibilists who were um writing very much in that mode um sometimes more and less self-aware about this so i think um you know frank jackson's version of compatibilism he's upfront about this where he th says something like look um you know here's a kind of control what compatibilism is but really if you're being uh you know but really maybe it's a kind of replacement notion um so so there's a, so so i mean there are cases where people were acknowledging this but i also think it's a um I think it's a mischaracterization of, uh, of uh, the bulk of a lot of 20th century compatibilists to represent them in that way. And the easy case, mm -hmm. again, is to think about the conditional analysis folks. Like that was clear. I mean, they're very explicit that this is, you know, they're telling you what what they think we mean and all we mean. Right. Mm -hmm. that, that language even comes from from T.F. Strawson about what we mean and all we mean by mm -hmm. uh, by these terms. And and if you think about it against the background about the kind of and this is one of these things where our grip on uh, on uh, philosophical method dis disagreements about philosophical methodology that are more than thirty years old. Um, that I think we don't tend to think and teach and talk about these things in, in quite the same way. But it means that we lose a grip on why some of these projects were shaped in the ways in which they were. Mm. So if you you know go back to the era of ordinary language philosophy, where part of what we were trying to do was to uncover the distinctions that already existed in everyday discourse. This is a broadly and generally a, a, an anti-revisionist picture. Or, or think about uh, P.F. Strawson's uh, descriptive metaphysics. So he's very explicit that he thinks that revisionary projects are just off the table. He thinks yeah. that philosophy properly restricted has to be descriptive. So any kind of compatibilism that's getting constructed out of those as background metaphilosophical commitments can't be revisionist. It, it's just already off the table that that, that you could go revisionist. Hmm. Um, and similarly, if you have like, uh, to pick a more recent example, so Robert Nozick in Philosophical Explanations thinks, look, the task of philosophy is to explain uh, how it could be the case, the things that we already think. <laughs> and again, this looks like if that if that's what you think we're doing, it's philosophical explanations is a, just kind of a defense of common sense or something like that. Yeah. Um, again, it's not clear what grounds there is for 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 uh, for significantly revisionist projects. And in contrast, if you come out of a tradition of something like Quinean naturalism, where the thought is. Uh, part of what we're doing in philosophical theorizing is being responsive to developments that are happening in the sciences and that we're continuous with those things. There, I think that the impulse to, to broadly revisionary elements uh, begins to emerge much more systematically. If you're committed to a kind of holism about the mind, that it's going to emerge much more organically. And I think you see this in the kind of Quine, Goodman, Rawlsian strategy that yields this kind of reflective equilibrium thing where 
where you have folks who are in the normative ethical traditions taking it for granted that there's no such thing as a normative ethical theory that captures all the intuitions in all of the cases. Instead, what you have is a theory that is the, the best balance of compromises about principles and, and commitments and intuitions and so on. Hmm. And, and so that that strand, folks who are in that strand, I think it's A, notice that they tend to be normative and B, on the normative side of the story. And uh, and B, take the reflective equilibrium for granted. But but where the the, the shape of the metaphysical fights have been, um, have been by people who are doing metaphysics oftentimes in a descriptive metaphysics mode, where the test of a metaphysical theory is, can you get coherence with everyday discourse? Can yeah. you explain away the kinds of conceptual distinctions that we have? And so it turns out, unsurprisingly, these ships pass each other in the night, and then there's just disagreement then about like how to understand what compatibilism is. Yeah. No, you're making me realize that I, I was I was even more revisionist than I thought I was, and I thought I was a little bit revisionist because um, when I'm I'm just kind of like thinking about you know the first time reading any of these compatibilist works, like, you know, Frankfurt's um, 71 paper, where he talks about, um, you know, second order desires, I did read that. And, you know, obviously, there was one sense in which it was a descriptive project, because I sort of like, I had my intuition pumped, like I recognized, oh, wow, that that is a really, that's a really clear way in which I think about things. But it also made me reflect on, like, that was it struck me at the time and like i'm still i still like that view that like that is at least part of the way we should think about things too so if i hadn't realized that or like if i hadn't already agreed with it like my my thinking was inherently revisionist even though i didn't realize it at the time yeah, yeah i i mean i and i hear you know again i want to be be careful to not um try to uh, assimilate every you know <laughs> all, all of the of the versions of compatibilism that are out there because I do think yeah. that that there are some versions of things that were called compatibilist that were clearly intended in a explicitly non-revisionist spirit yeah and then there are things that I think where it's much more ambiguous about wh what way they are so that maybe that the 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 author, sort of tacitly accepted the constraints of talking as though it was non-revisionist, even though they might well have accepted that come push to shove. If push comes to shove, maybe it's okay to be revisionist. And then other folks for whom they just took it for granted that uh, that revisionist theorizing um, was something that you could go in for, especially for folks coming out of the kind of Rawlsian reflective equilibrium tradition. And so that it's, it, it's something that is so uh, common to how you do philosophy, that it's not even worth the name as a distinctive methodology or as a possibility in conceptual space. And I think part of the contribution of the development of self-consciously revisionist theories to the wider debate is partly just to force some clarification about these kinds of things. So that so that what, you know, theories that oftentimes can look like they're at cross purposes might not have to be. I mean, we still have these questions about which substantively, substantively, which theory should we at the end of the day adopt and why and so on. But I think, you know, one way to put it is that, um, you know, the old accusation that that compatibilists are engaged in a wretched subterfuge. It, it's it's no it, it might be wretched, but it's no subterfuge at all if you're a revisionist <laughs> and you're telling them, look, yeah. I am trying to offer you a replacement account of a, what I think of as a defective, broken, or otherwise imperfect way of organizing our understanding about these things. That's not a subterfuge. Mm. And but I think that but the reason why the, the insult had historical purchase was precisely because we weren't cautious about some of these distinctions. Yeah. Um, so in the time we have left, I, I want to give you a chance to um, talk about what type of of 
um, theory you want us to revise too. So, um, because, you know, as you've pointed out in the book and in this conversation, you know, just knowing that someone's revisionist doesn't necessarily indicate like what they want to revise our theory too. So, um, if I, if I'm reading you in the book correctly, it seems like you sort of come out as a certain type of compatibilist, um, favoring, uh, what you, what you say is the, um, uh, the freedom relevant aspects of responsible agency is the agent's sensitivity to specifically moral considerations and the capacity of that agent to appropriately govern his or her conduct in light of those considerations. So roughly speaking, sort of a moral reasons responsive compatibilist. Is that right? Yeah, so good. So uh, I, I guess I think um, uh, here as, uh, you know, there, there, there are different pieces here depending on on where one picks up the thread. But I think in terms of how I think about, about free will, I think the right replacement notion of free will mm -hmm. is a reasons responsiveness notion. Um, and and, and I, I do think it is a, a, a modestly revisionist notion because of course I, it, it, it turns out that this doesn't have to require anything like uh, ultimacy or sourcehood in the sense that, that some incompatibles have wanted and that I think many of the kind of you know, as it were, ordinary competent users of the, of of their native languages uh, um, would want when asked about free will or freedom of the sort that could explain or be a ground for things like dessert and so on. Um, so, uh, so I do think it is a revisionist notion, but I do think it it can do a lot of the heavy lifting that we need that notion to do, um, and and it preserves topic continuity in various ways about organizing practices of of differential praise and blame and holding to account and, and demanding responses or accountability and so on. And I think that's the sense in which I think there is topic continuity that warrants the thinking. It is a, it is a replacement for the old notion. It's not a change of topic, mm. uh, but it, uh, but I do think it, it is revisionist in the way in which I was sketching. And then the question is why that notion as opposed to another notion. And there, I think we have to do a couple of different things. So one is just, being able to show that it can do a lot of the work in the kind of everyday ordinary extensional concept contexts where we would want to appeal to a notion like free will did he do it of his or her own free will um you know when we when we presume that something like free will is operative in our accountability context or um you know can it explain the significance of deliberation or uh, you know there, there are these different kinds of things that we would want an account to do and i think it does a pretty good job across the board on a lot of those sorts of things but then there's a question about like, so so why even hold on to this notion? And that's where I think a lot of the really interesting fights uh, uh, remain. I mean, that is uh, the, the you know, wh why not go the, the kind of paraboom or Caruso style route where the thought is, and here I want to be careful because the paraboom of 2022 is significantly different than the paraboom of 2001, for example. But mm. I think, you know, the, the old 2001 paraboom, the suggestion was the discovery that we're not um, uh, that, that we don't have agent causation, uh, um, incompatible stage and causation means that we've got to go in for massive uh, abandonment of lots of our everyday accountability practices. And uh, and I think, you know, Caruso was, that holds a view like that still today. I think Paraboom's walked back important parts about that, the really radical versions of that view. But, uh, but uh, uh, I do think you know, put it against that view, the interesting challenge is why not go that route? And then, uh, and, and, and in contrast, the kind of revisionism I advocate for doesn't think that we are on the hook for, for massive or radical transformation of our practices. 
that it's relatively limited transformation of our practices. But then there are all of these intermediate positions available where you might imagine, well, maybe we get by better without um, blame practices at all. Maybe we get better, uh, we can get by with uh, certain kinds of blame, but not other kinds of blame. I think that's where a lot of the interesting, uh, interesting work remains to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I mean, you sort of um, tease a little bit, I think what you go into at greater length in um, building better beings uh, with the, with your point about, you know, sort of these, these reactions of like blameworthiness or praiseworthiness, they're not merely these like non-cognitive reactions that we have. They're also like this sort of um, call to like bettering ourselves as the title of the book implies, like they're calls to moral reform and like moral communication that, are more than just sort of like brute, you know, reactions of like, this thing is bad, you know? Um, so is that, yeah, I, I, I have not read the, is that 2013? Was that, yeah. that book pu- was published? Yeah. I haven't read that yet, but having read this, I definitely intend to um, now. Um, so yeah. Fantastic. I, <laughs> you, you've got me hooked. Uh, you'll get <laughs> whatever the proceeds on your end are like five cents <laughs> from, yeah. from the Amazon purchase. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll take what I can get. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, I know we're, we're coming up on the amount of time that I, I asked um, from you. So thanks really, really, um, you know, a lot for, for talking. This was a ton of fun. Do you, just to close, I'm kind of curious on how you think we should actually go about revising um, people's beliefs, because I could imagine, you know, someone listening to this, like really buying your your thesis here. Yeah, we should really revise these notions, um, but sort of not being sure how exactly you you suggest that we do that. Um, is it just listening to Plato's Cave or is it more than that? Yeah, everybody should listen to Plato's Cave. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is a great question for which I don't have the world's greatest answer. Um, so, uh, I mean, I don't know that I ever have the world's greatest answer, but here's an answer. Um, I, I, so I do think that... Um, that uh, uh, that the the shift from um, from one way of thinking to another way of thinking is a uh, is a diver- diverse and disordered process. There are a lot of ways in which ideas that um, are right or fruitful or maybe the next step to take in a kind of complicated history of an idea. Um, even if it's not a final step, uh, that those things can unfold in in wildly different ways. And partly how and why they unfold is partly about the kinds of pressures on their unfolding. So so one way to think about this is um, it might be that it's enough, uh, you know, it's enough that physicists are clear on how simultaneity actually works that it doesn't matter if lay lay, lay people aren't clear on how simultaneity works. Um, and so it just might be the case that it's, you know, uh, our folk notions of, of simultaneity, like it just, they're, they're literally false, but it doesn't affect much at the level of practice. We can usually continue kind of roughly as we were. And if that's how the revision uh, goes, then maybe it, it's just, it's important for philosophers to get clear on this. <laughs> but, you know, I, I and and sometimes it might matter that other people aren't. I think about this in any kind of like uh, the kind of philosophy of time travel cases, right? So the fair amount of convergence that you can't change the past. Um, you know, it, the the main consequence of the folk not believing it is that we get Hollywood movies where people can go back and change the past. Yeah. Um, but that's the main cost for, yeah. for, for having it only be expert belief. But then there are other cases where 
Um, there are some stakes to getting clear about this. And so sometimes, uh, you know, trans that, you know, the example I gave at the outset about transformations and how the, the understanding about culpability that was um, at, at the heart of, of criminal law, um, that did yield significant transformations about a kind of walking back from something like a strict liability system to an mm. intention sensitive system um, or a foresight sensitive system. And so I think, you know, so sometimes those, those transformations can, can be really important. And then in other cases, uh, maybe it's just an open question downstream to what extent and how much this, th this matters and what uptake looks like. So, uh, so sometimes the thought goes something like, you know, the, the case uh, of same-sex marriage in the U.S., where the thought was something like, no, this is just conceptually impossible. And a group of other people were like, no, 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 it is conceptually possible. And it's really important that we we make the shift and then you can have a kind of critical moment. And and how does that change happen? Well, you know, even if philosophers, and I, I don't know the full history about this, but even if philosophers were early to proposals about this as a conceptual possibility, the transformation of society doesn't happen be just because people in the ivory tower are saying it. It's because everyday people are picking up and discussing and 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 you, you see examples in the media and you you know mm -hmm. the the you know you watch will and grace uh, or you you know you 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 have a friend who and and so these kinds of things begin to move uh move opinion in ways that can cause avalanche changes in 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 social practices and so i think look to all the places where people change their minds about it women and daughters weren't property uh, women and daughters should have the right to vote. Uh, you know, uh, uh, people who aren't white landowners should have the right to vote. Uh, I mean, they, they, you know, they, we have big, you know, but these things are slow and they involve lots of on the, on the ground street fighting, as it were. Uh, um, or, or as my old teacher, Ken Taylor, used to say, it's the, the messy retail business of politics. And so I do think there might be some cases in which uh, conceptual changes will require that. And I and I think it's open. It's an open question how much transformations in our in our concepts of responsibility and free will are going to entail or require engaging in those messy retail business of politics kinds of questions. Yeah, definitely. Um, where can people find, I've already, you know, recommended this book, which you can find a lot of places used for pretty cheap if you're, if you're trying to get into, you know, this, uh, this topic, but where can people find out more about your work? So probably the uh, four views on free will is as good as uh, as good as it gets for a, a, a straightforward intro access to a lot of these things and has the the tremendous advantage of, of having representatives of, of other views in in the volume as well. So uh, I think it's a it's a great book in a lot of ways. Um, the uh, uh, my biggest attempt to try to work out these things in any systematic detail is uh, is building better beings, a theory of moral responsibility, and that was a 2013 book. Um, and then you can check out my website for lots of uh, articles of, uh, of various lengths and various quality on, on these kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, I'll include links in the description wherever people are watching or listening to all of those. Um, so Manuel, stay on the line if you would for a second. But thank you so much. This was a ton of fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Manuel. Um, that was a ton of fun for me. And it really still just amazes me that, you know, I can just reach out to these people who are super famous and super knowledgeable about the field that I'm interested in and have them just agree to give me an hour of their time. Um, it's pretty amazing, actually, to have that happen. Um, so thank you again to Manuel for, uh, for talking with me. And, um, and I hope that you enjoyed the, the conversation as well. So if you want to um, support me and the show in any way, um, you can do so primarily by sharing it. Um, you can share it on Twitter, social media of any type. 
Uh, you can rate it on Apple Podcasts, like this video on YouTube, or subscribe via RSS feed or iTunes. Um, you can review it there as well. Uh, you can discuss it on your own show or connect me with guests or recommend topics to cover. Um, you can contact me at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com and get in touch with me or follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And you can visit my website as well, uh, which is pretty recent, uh, jordanmyers.org. And as always, thank you for listening and keep struggling to escape the cave.